0: About ten years ago, I broke my first Guinness World Record. Now, granted, it was with thousands of other people, but that did not stop stop me from feeling this weird sense of pride that I am in the Guinness Book of World Records. That the the record that I was a part of breaking was the world's largest pillow fight. Now, I was at this conference, and for whatever reason, they decided to add a little bit extra to the conference free to buy these really cheap airline pillows, which they passed out one morning. And then they just said, hey, duke it out for a couple minutes, which was strangely therapeutic um, for me. And so for a couple minutes, we just had a giant pillow fight with thousands of people, and, and it was weirder than it sounds. Um, but even weirder than that is the fact that I, I took this strange sense of pride that I am now in the Guinness Book of World Records um, and even weirder than that is when I Googled uh, it this week, I learned that some some ridiculous minor league baseball team in Minnesota has broken my Guinness I'm no longer in the Guinness Book of World Records. and for some reason, and weirdly, I'm very disappointed um, in that. That was disappointing to to learn. And so it made me wonder why are we so obsessed with with who's best with? record lists or greatest lists. Just this week, I hardly ever listened to the radio, but I had it on for a few minutes, and I heard radio hosts filling radio time debating the greatest movies of the 21st century, which is, 21st century's not even 16 years old yet. I heard radio, radio host debating the greatest Major League Baseball relief pitcher of all time, the greatest Olympians of all time, that we, we're obsessed with the greatest lists or who is the best, Why? And I'm sure no one in here is as weird as I am. I doubt anyone else would be strangely prideful that you are in the Guinness Book of World Records for breaking the world's largest pillow fight. But, but the reality is we all walk in here with, with sort of this sense of, of wanting to be important, wanting to be great, wanting to have honor, wanting to have prestige, wanting to compare ourselves to others. And while those things themselves aren't necessarily always bad, our obsession with those things in our culture and context is to me a symptom of something that, that is wrong with us. Something that's wrong with, with every human heart. And it's what's wrong with what the heart of, of James and John and their mother who have come to Jesus with this request. And the way Jesus responds to them in their request is, is going to unpack this, this thing wrong with us in our hearts. And what Jesus does, he, he goes right to, to greatness. What, right to what it is to have a great life, to, to be a great person. And what he's going to do is he's going to begin by pointing out where you and I go wrong in our search for greatness. What greatness, what a great life really is, and how you find it. So let's look at this, this passage under those three headings. Where, where you and I tend to look for, for a great life, where, um, what it actually is, and how you can find it. Now, the mother of, of two of Jesus' disciples, they've come to Jesus with a request. And, and the reality is they, they've been following Jesus, they've seen Jesus for a while, and they know success when they see it. That Jesus, he's healed the blind, he has actually made dead people live again. Jesus is, is going to have a huge crowd following him, he's popular. And so at the, sort of at the apex of Jesus' fame, the, this mother of two of Jesus' closest disciples go to him and, and, and ask him for honor, for importance, to be the most important people in Jesus' Kingdom, that's the request. Say to these two sons of mine that one sits at your right hand, one sits at your left. And to us, this request, it feels weird, probably on, on two levels. One is that this is, this is a mom asking for a job for her two sons. Now, when I applied at Christ Community, I did not ask my mom to call our senior pastors and put in a good word for me. It would have been irrelevant, but two, it would have been weird. My guess is they would never have hired me if my mom had called them and said, but... Give, give to me my son that this campus pastor. it just would have been strange, so we hear that it's weird, and yet, before we judge them too harshly, is it really too hard to imagine a parent pulling some string for their kids, trying to cut some corners, use some, use some influence or leverage to get your kids a little bit ahead so that's one reason it's weird it's it's a mom asking for a job for her kids, but the second reason it feels weird to us is because of this request, what it is, that to sit on Jesus' right and left hand. We're not, maybe you're not sure what that, that is. And what it is is that, that James and John are asking to have the two most important places in Jesus' kingdom. Behind Jesus, of course, right? he's still most important, but then closely behind Jesus is James and John. That's what they're asking, almost to be like a vice president and secretary of state. And so Jesus, as he typically does when someone comes to him with a request or a question, he responds to the request by not responding to the request. I mean, he does, but he, he doesn't. Now I want us to hear again what Jesus says to them, because what he's saying to them is actually unpacking what's wrong with them, what's wrong with their heart, why they, why the, what they're approaching. Both they don't really know what they're asking for, and also they, they, there's something wrong with the request. Here's what Jesus says in response to them. He said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And so Jesus, he does, he does two things here. Well, first, he, he, he unpacks what's wrong with, with their heart, but But more than that, he's going to show them that they don't really actually know what they're asking for. And the problem that's at the center of their heart, that's at the center of you and I, our hearts, that Jesus is pushing into here is selfish ambition. This desire every human being has to use the power available to us to advance our own life, our own cause, our own self-interest, or for the self-interest of our kids. It's the desire to get more power, more authority, more honor so that I look better or so that my kids look better. The, the, the most human beings live, as Tim Keller put this, with the, the cry of our heart being my life for me, my, my power, my authority, my influence for me. And so Jesus says two things in response to James and John here about selfish ambition. At first, selfish ambition, it cannot handle greatness, You cannot cannot handle a truly great life if you're a selfishly ambitious person. And so let me me just ask this morning, what what would you say is the ambition of your life? What do you hope for in, in your life? What do you hope to accomplish? What do you hope to do? And maybe your ambition is in your workplace. You have dreams and thoughts about how much money you should make or how far you should advance or what the end of your career should look like. Maybe your ambition is your kids. You have a certain vision in game of what you think your kids' life should be like. You have expectations about how they should turn out, and the ambitious of your life is really being lived out through your your kids. What is your ambition in life? And I want to be really clear. Ambition is not bad. In fact, I hope everyone in this room has ambition. I hope your goal in life isn't to, like, die on your sofa and watch as much golf as possible, although there there are moments when that sounds really intriguing to me. Um, (laughs) I hope you have ambition, things you want to do in life. And Jesus, in what he's saying to James and John is not, hey, you shouldn't want a great life. You shouldn't want influence. He's not saying that. He's pushing back on the real reason they want those things, which is, is selfishness. It's a selfish ambition. Because a selfish ambition or a life built on selfish ambi- ambition is a fragile foundation. Because, it, listen, what that means is the first concern of your life is you. And that means, listen, your marriage won't be great. Your work life won't be great. Your kids will resent you. Like If you build your life around yourself, it's going to be deeply problematic. But what Jesus, So what Jesus does here is, is the first question he asks them, are you able to drink from the cup that I am to drink? It just sounds confusing to us, which shouldn't surprise us in too many ways. But, but what he says, am I able to, are you able to drink from the cup that I am to, to drink from? Even though that's confusing to us, that would not have been confusing to James and John. Because the image, the metaphor of a cup was deeply personal to them. It was it's through all of the Hebrew scriptures. James and John would have read this, this long Hebrew scripture that always referring to cup. And whenever a cup is mentioned, it almost always refers to suffering or judgment, retribution. When you drink a cup, it's suffering. And so when Jesus responds to them, what he's saying to them is, okay, you want power, you want influence, you want prestige, you want honor. Can you suffer? And they pipe out a, a yes, we are able, which they have no idea what they're talking about, right? And then Jesus, he basically says that. You don't have any idea what you're asking for. But Jesus, he, you want a great life, you have to suffer. And the reality is if you're driven by selfish ambition, you will, you will run from suffering as much as you can. And the reality is you can't do anything great without suffering. Try raising kids without suffering. Try starting a business or entering into a career without suffering. Try fighting injustice without suffering. Try having a really great marriage without suffering. You cannot do anything without, that's truly meaningful or truly great without some sort of suffering. And Jesus in particular is saying here, if you want to serve in my kingdom... If you, want to, if you want to be important in my kingdom, you have to drink my cup. You have to suffer. So Jesus looks at them and he looks at us and he says, You, you want a great life? Come suffer with me. My guess is none of us would attach a great life with suffering, and yet Jesus starts there. And, and the reality is, selfish suff- ambition cannot handle suffering. You, a great life, it will not lead. Um, you will not have a great life without suffering. So first, selfish ambition it cannot it cannot ha- even handle greatness because you you run from suffering, the very thing that could lead you to a great life. But secondly, selfish ambition it can't handle power. Then, if the fundamental cry of my heart is my life for me, what happens when I get a hold of some real power? Or what would happen to you if you got a hold of some real power? And this is where maybe some of you are thinking, oh, well, that's a good, good thing I don't have any real power then because I'd be a disaster if I did. But that, that's not true. The reality is every person in this room has unimaginable power. By your place in context where you live, the, um, the amount of money that you, you have at your disposal, the community that you are a part of, that, that kids, you have power over your parents or siblings, that the kids, if you want to make the rest of the day miserable, you have unlimited power to do that to your parents or to your siblings, you also have unlimited power to make the day really great, really amazing. That adults, you have w- power in your workplace, right? If, 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 whether you have employees under you, people who are directly responsible to you, who need you, and, and, or you have colleagues you work with, you know you can make their work week miserable if you want to. That parents, you have unimaginable power over your kids. They are completely dependent and reliant on you. Listen, every human being has a kingdom. Every human being has power. And when your selfish ambition mixes with that power, it, it destroys those around you. The, one of the most jarring examples of that is the Netflix show, House of Cards, that the main character in that show, Frank Underwood, is a power hungry politician who uses his power at every turn to advance his own cause, to step on other people, and to, to move ahead. In life. And what's interesting about the character is that he basically says, he basically pulls out the fact that, that power is really the great sin struggle that you and I wrestle with. It's not money, it's not lust. Ultimately, power is a greater problem. And so there's this moment in the show when he, he's sort of looking down on a fellow politician who's made a decision to get more money but lose power. And here's what he says about that moment such a waste of talent. He chose money over power, a mistake nearly everyone makes. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. And that, that right there is what makes selfish ambition mixed with power, or mixed with power so dangerous, because you have power. You have influence. Wherever you, whatever your work vocation is, your family setting is, you have power. And if, if selfish ambition is what drives you. You'll build that old stone building that will last for centuries, but it will be to yourself, and it will hurt everyone around you. Not parents. That's why, that's why when we lose our temper, we scream at our kids. It's another way of getting back power, isn't it? It's why when employees often, or often employees become trouble to their boss, because it's a way to grab back power. When your boss is treating you poorly, a way to grab back power is to treat them poorly in response. It's why the more power someone gets, whether it's a politician and whether it's someone in the workplace, whether it's someone within their own family, they use that power to get their own way, to enhance their wealth, to enhance their own ambition, their own life. My life for me. And so a question I want all of us to reflect on this morning, a question that hopefully you reflect on through the week is, is who is flourishing because of your power? That who because of the power at your disposal is flourishing? At your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your culture, who's flourishing because of you? Or is only you flourishing because of you? Do you exercise your power out of selfish ambition? Do you lord it over others? Because Jesus, that's where he goes next. He says, that's the way the world operates. As everyone grabs power, they get it for themselves, and they use it to enhance their own life. And so when he says to James and John, I'm calling you to a life of suffering, he then steps back because he knows all the, the rest of the disciples are mad because these two guys asked first. And So they're all, they're all mad because they're thinking James and John are going to get the most important position. So Jesus turns to all the disciples and says this to them. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says most people, once they get power, they use it for themselves. And it's not hard to see in our day, is it? Whether it's politicians, and once they have influence and power, they use that to get wealthy themselves or to leverage um, that to enhance their own lives. It's not hard to see in powerful co- corporations that oftentimes um, um, use that power influence not for the good of communities or for the world, but for their own interests. And it can be easy for all of us to look at those extreme examples of politicians or people with lots of money, lots of power, and to miss the subtle ways we, we use our own power, our own smaller source of power to enhance our own lives. The, o- the, the ways we live about our lives, saying my life for me. Now, I had this encounter in my own life in a real way when I, I, I stepped out of pastoral ministry and, and went into seminary for a season. And so I went from um, pastoring a small rural church to being a seminary student. And, and being a seminary student, I knew not, I needed a job that had uh, um, um, health insurance available to me, a pretty flexible schedule, and preferably free coffee. And so, uh, so I, applied, I applied at Starbucks and got a job there. And, and it's just, it was a very difficult setting in which to work because people were constantly treating me like trash. That it was, if I got an order wrong, they'd often um, be incredibly rude or, or ungracious to me. If I didn't laugh at their lame jokes, they would wonder what was wrong with my sense of humor. I was like, nothing. It's your sense of humor that's the problem, right? It was just this weird, it was just this weird position of people were always above me, and I hated it. And so I, I'd often try to find ways to subtly grab back power, whether it was using the gift of sarcasm that I have to bar back at them, or whether it was, was giving them decaf instead of regular coffee um, so they wouldn't know, right? It's, I always wanted to find ways to grab back power, and I, real, I, I began to see this in myself, and what I realized was that it, it is easy to, to look at a pastor and think, oh, that's a, that's the job of a servant. A servant is is a pastor. But the reality is I went from a job where I had over 100 people listen to me in silence for 30 minutes every week, which is, I mean, this is a very powerful position, right? You're all listening um, to me. There, that can feed the ego very, very quickly. And so I went from this job where everyone listened to me for 30 minutes and and everyone told me what how great important my job is and how everyone thanked me i got thanks all from going from that to now i'm the one sitting in silence while people bark orders at me and no one thinks what i'm doing is important unless i mess it up for them and then they treat me like this was important but you are not and that shift had showed for me how easy it is just to to want to be important to want to have a place of honor want to have a place of prestige want to have people looking up at me smiling at me thanking Me, and that's what Jesus is saying. There's not a great life down that road. And so he calls his disciples away from me. He says, you're looking for greatness and prestige and honor and power, and it's not there. It's not there. Selfish ambition will destroy a great life. So that's where we tend to look for greatness is in power and honor and prestige. But Jesus directs us to another place, what greatness is. Which is that it's, it's two things he really says here about greatness. The greatness is for, it's a posture, it's not a position. And then secondly, greatness is a surrendering of your rights. The greatness is a posture, not a position. And Jesus says greatness is service. Right, whoever, uh, whoever to be great among you needs to serve. A service, that is... What greatness is. And, and listen, if, if, that, if we take that seriously, that greatness is actually lowering, lowering yourself. Instead of saying, my life for me, my life for you. If you really take that seriously, it raises a lot of questions. Like, well, if I start serving everybody, I'll never get ahead. People will walk on me. That, that just doesn't work in, in real life. It sounds counterproductive to a marriage. It sounds counterproductive to um, running a business. It sounds ca- counterproductive to parenting, right? If I'm not speaking up for myself, who will? If I'm not making sure that I'm getting served, who's going to make sure that I get served? And what's so interesting about, about what Jesus says here is it's not just some theological abstraction that, that only works in the abstract. This works practically. In his best-selling book, Good to Great, Jim Collins studied businesses, leaders, and tried to discern what type of leaders produce the, both, the best results, both businesses that make um, more money as well as businesses that people actually want to work for. And what he found is that the best leaders that, that he could encounter matched two qualities. One was um, professional will, right a drive to do something great, which that's another sermon on work ethic. But the second quality was, was personal humility. That businesses that make the most money and people that actually want to work there are, are run by, by people who are humble, who serve, who do not lead out of selfish ambition. Which really shouldn't surprise us because if the Bible's right and Jesus is the God of the universe, then that means the entire universe, which is far more complex than whatever business or family structure you have, the entire universe is run from this, is run from a a person of humility and service. And if the entire universe can run that way, then you can do that. Then of course your workplace would work that way. Of course your family would work. That way. And so the first question I, listen, I want you to wrestle through, think through is, is who's flourishing because of your power? But the second question I want us to think through, wrestle through this morning is what would those who are, are underneath you or who work for you say about you? If you have employees, people who work under you, what, would they call you a servant? If, they, if you pulled out Matthew 20 as your life verse, would they laugh or become a Christian? Or what about your colleagues, people you work alongside, people who are your equals? Would they, would they say you've embraced a a posture of servanthood? Kids, would your parents say that about about you and the way that you live out your life at home? The parents, would your kids say that about, about you? Then what would those who who you're supposed to be serving, what would they say about about you? I know, I know it's cheesy, and I, I'm, not, I'm not one to give in to do cheesy things, but I, I just think I wanted to do this. other campus pastor thought this was a good idea. It's why we printed off a little business card as a reminder for you to take to your workplace, tape it to your refrigerator. Whatever your vocational title is, whatever you do Monday to Saturday, your main work, it's to be a servant. It's to serve those around you, because leadership is not a position. Right? And having influence, having power, it's not about a position that you get. It's a posture that you are to take to serve those around you. That greatness, according to Jesus, is not, it's not about a position in life. It's about a posture that you take. So that's, that's the first thing he says about greatness. The second, the thing that no one will like is greatness is a surrendering of your rights. That we can't get around this. Jesus basically, there's this progression where first Jesus calls out our second selfish ambition, then he calls us to service, and then he just, he just puts all the cards on the table when he says, Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That he goes right to slavery. And that's not an endorsement of slavery. Jesus is using this metaphor that he's saying, When you think about your life, it's not my life for me, it's my life for you. I surrender. My claims on you to serve you and get below you. That in our culture, it's, it's easy to go around because of, of the wealth available to us, because of the fact that people are often serving us. It's, to make, it's easy for us to make the questions we mostly ask in our life is, is well, who's going to serve me? What will I get out of this? What's in it for me? And I'm not saying there's never a time you should ask those questions, but those are terrible questions to run your life by. And friends, the church should be the one place that, that's really free of those questions. Right? We don't walk into this place saying, what's in it for me? What, what do I get from this? What, what will you do for me? The, the church is the one place. that we, we don't ask those questions. We are instead people who walk around asking, what can I do for you? What's in it for you? My life for you. And today marks the the two-year anniversary of launching our campus, of telling Christ Community we wanted to plant a church in somewhere in the Shawnee, Lenexa area. And what Jesus says here is what both terrified me about doing this and also made me really want to do it. It terrified me because I knew if we came here, if we did this, there would be people who came to a point and, and just said, Tim, I'm not being served what I need from a church, your church can't give to me. Because we're a church plant, right? We're, we're in a church plant. We're in a school. There's, like, we just try to breathe, right? It's like breathing is an accomplishment for us. Just having Sunday morning worship is an accomplishment for us. So I knew those conversations would come. And I, and I get it. I've had a few of those. I'm sympathetic. I've been there. It's what terrified me about this place. Because in our, in our context, that's generally, it's an easy way for people to approach the church. What can you give to me? What can you do for me? But it's also why I wanted to come and do this because I knew, however, it shook out a year and a half, two years down the road, there would be a community of people left who, who actually were embodying this these verses. I I am here to serve, not to be served. Does it say along with Jesus? This is I'm not in it for me. It's not my life for me. It's my life. For you, that the whole reason we came and started this place was to say to a community, we are a church that gave up a building and and all of the, the nice things that come from being a church that's 10 or 20 years old, and we're gonna go start something new because we want more people to know what a church could be or should be. In my life, for you, right? We're giving ourselves away. We're here to serve and not to be served. A new church doesn't exist unless people have bought into that and have lived that out and have embodied that every week. And that's what we're called to as a church. This is why we exist. If you're new, if you come in the last year and a half, the whole reason we're here is to try to embody these words from Jesus. We are here to serve and not to be served. We are here to give ourselves away. We are here to be here for people who don't yet come or attend our church. And the reality is, listen, the moment you say that, it's like, okay, well, what, but what if, what if it's not in it for you? What, if, what, if, what is there still in it for me? Or what, if I give myself away, how do I know? I won't we'll be left in the cold. Right? It's why Jesus goes to this word slave. It's, it, there's irony here. Because we, where Jesus is going to end is, is how you and I are to find a great life. Which is the only, the only way this can work. The only way you and I can actually live in our marriages, in our vocations, in our church, in our workplaces, my life for you, not my life for me, is if we are convinced someone has come to serve us in a way that frees us to serve everyone else around us. Which is where Jesus ends, right? He he calls his disciples to slavery, and then he goes to his own story, his own life. Where he says, whoever be first among you must be a slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. We just take that in for a minute. The God of the universe who runs planets and keeps them in place and makes the sun heat up our planets and gives us the season of winter to cool us down, the God who keeps the stars in place, who makes it rain, who makes it thunder, who makes it lightning, he came to serve you, me. How Christians could we ever be the sorts of people looking at our spouse or our kids or those in our workplace saying, what can you do for me, my life for me? How can I get more of power for myself? How can I get more prestige For myself, you've been served by the God of the universe. What more could anyone else do for you? But it's not just that, because the last thing Jesus says is, Even as the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know who gets ransomed? Slaves. That when Jesus calls you and I to slavery, to this position of, of service... There's irony there, because what, what he's actually saying is, I freed you from slavery. Slavery is a life of selfish ambition. Slavery is a life of my life for me, of going around and saying, what can you do for me? My life, I need more power. I need more honor, prestige. That is slavery. Jesus saved you from that, so you could go around saying, my life for you. That's a life of freedom. It's a life God himself lived out for us when he sent Jesus to come among us, to dwell among us, not to come in and ask what we could do for him, but instead give his life away as a ransom for many. To give his life away for the good of others. And Christians, that should be the church. We should be the one place where we're not in it for ourselves. right? Where We're not, we're not looking out for ourselves first only because Jesus has first looked out for us. So may we be a church who is here not to be served, but to serve. And to give our lives away. That the definition of Jesus for a great life is not my life for me, but my life for you. And the church should be the one place that is abundantly true. Let's pray.